You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. To make sure that um, they're all taken care of, not just by their family, but by the community in which they live. And I've got three kids, all good kids, all doing their own thing, nice daughters-in-law, and seven grandchildren. And I really don't want to see the world destroyed for them. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 225, Kids Count, airing for the first time on Sunday, January 10th, 2016. How do we help the most vulnerable members of our society not only survive, but thrive? As the future of our world, our children deserve important consideration. Today, we explore concepts such as childhood poverty, resilience, and family-friendly policies with Claire Berkowitz, the Executive Director of the Maine Children's Alliance, and Maine Children's Alliance Corporate Giraffe Award winner, Jim Wellahan, co-owner and CEO of Lamy Wellahan. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, the front room, the grill room, and the corner room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. When I worked at Maine Health as uh, the medical advisor for Raising Readers, we were fortunate to um, cross over with the Maine Children's Alliance on a very regular basis. And today I'm extremely fortunate to have with me Claire Berkowitz, who is the executive director of the Maine Children's Alliance. And in fact, she has in her hands, hot off the press, the 2015 Maine Kids Count book, which is something that as a Raising Readers medical director and advisor, I spent a lot of time with. So I appreciate the work that you've been doing and the work that the Maine Children's Alliance is doing. And thanks so much for being in here. Well, thanks for having me and for um, letting us you know, lift our voices um, about the data book and about kids' issues in Maine. Well, tell me about the Maine Children's Alliance for people who may not be that familiar with it. Sure. We've been around for over 20 years. Um, we are a multi-issue child advocacy organization, So, and we are um, based in Augusta, so we do a lot of work on policy, making sure that policies are, um, when people do make policies, that they're thinking about what's best for children. Um, first and foremost. And we also want to then, once that policy is passed, um, how it's implemented and, and sharing best practices, trying to convene people um, who work with children and for children and making sure that across communities in Maine, people are sharing best practices and, um, and, and making sure that kids get the best start and the best um, access um, to, to services so that they can um, reach their full potential. 
What was it 20 years ago that caused the Maine Children's Alliance to come into being? Was there any triggering event? I think it was, there were some people that were doing good work um, around child protective services and child welfare um, that really, you know, looking at what's, um, what do, what's happening to, to create um, the need to have children taken from their homes. Um, and so I think that was a catalyst. I wasn't here when that started, but that's what I understand. Um, and, and so, and from that, um, you know, growing into other areas, realizing that poverty has so much, um, the condition of poverty um, has so much of an impact on children and families. And, um, and so branching out into other areas of um, children's lives over the years to, to make sure that um, they're all taken care of, not just by their family, but by the community in which they live. When I worked for Maine Health and Raising Readers, one of the reasons we thought it was important to get books into the hands of children, and this was a, an organization that still is out there putting, um, giving books to kids ages zero through five in doctor's offices and um, with healthcare providers, nurse practitioners, physician assist- assistants, is that we understood that um, in order to grow as a child, you had to have all the right conditions. You had to have Um, You had to have the right nourishment, the right food, the right education, and that um, poverty was something that impacted every single aspect of your life, your health, um, your long-term earning potential, your educational Mm -hmm. abilities. And this is one of the things that I really liked about the Maine Children's Alliance is that there are so many different places that you've had to uh, work on issues. And you're really really right in it. You've really been looking at this for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. And and I... And we still are trying to look for where we still need to be. Um, We've been doing some work around the social-emotional development of young children. Um, We've been hearing through our work um, just from providers of child care and um, folks who work with young children that there's um, behavioral health issues going on for young children that um, child care providers don't feel equipped um, to handle. And so we've just in the last year, just from the, like just from conversations, it's led us down a path of um, exploring with others what needs to happen to prevent kids from being expelled or suspended from childcare. We're talking, you know, three and four year olds, um, but that's not to fault the providers. They don't have, you know, the, they're not equipped. They don't have um, folks who can do the consultations and help them um, better. Um, understand what's going on for a child and so we're we're doing work with the Maine Children's Growth Council um, and and exploring um, what the issues are so that we can find solutions so we're constantly listening to people looking at the data um, research knowing full well that it you know it's those early years that are the most crucial in terms of uh, mitigating negative outcomes later in life for kids so really focusing on the birth to five prenatal actually um, is is key for our public dollars, um, but as well as just you know how we think about you know the, the well-being of children. So we're really um, a little laser beam focused right now on that that time period in a child's life. Today is the release of the Maine Kids Count book, and it's something that I think that most providers around the state look forward to on a yearly mm-hmm. basis because it's such a wealth of information about. Uh, the children that we care for and mm-hmm. their families, really. 
Tell me what sorts of things, well, first of all, tell me about the Kids Count book. What is it exactly? Well, it is a um, state-level look at um, data across um, the areas of physical and mental health of children, social and economic status, as well as um, education, in- including early care and education going through um, to you know young adults. And we've been gathering data on this for, this is our 19th edition of the data book. And it's funded by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Every state um, in our country has a Kids Count grantee who um, produces similar um, kinds of data um, products. And um, we're, so we're proud to be a part of that network. There's really great people doing this work across our country on behalf of children. Um, and, and so it, it's really a snapshot. It's a snapshot, for, and, and I mean like that it's going to change tomorrow. This data, you know, is living, breathing data, and we'll get new data tomorrow that will change what's printed in the book. Um, so we do also have a data center. It's called the Kids Count Data Center, where you can find online um, information and, and, and make really cool graphs and um, maps and things of, of county-level data on some of the in- indicators. But it, it's really a tool for policymakers, decision makers, um, business leaders, grant writers, anyone who um, needs data to make the case for um, the work that they're doing. And so we um, use state agency data, we use um, U.S. Census Bureau data, um, it has to be reliable, it has to be consistent, and we, um, and we use it and track it and, and look at trends over time. So give me some examples of important data points that you're interested in looking at. Well, we talked about child poverty, um, and that is something that underlies so many of the other indicators that we're, um, that we're measuring. And so this is 2000, so as I said before, data changes. We printed our data book, and at the time, 18.2% of children in Maine under age 18 were living in poverty. Well, new data came out yesterday <laughs> from this source that we use um, for 2014, and it was up slightly to 19%. So, I mean, we're basically staying steady. It's not getting better for kids. Um, over the last decade, um, child poverty has risen in Maine. And the poorest are the youngest. Our birth to five kids, one in five of our youngest are living in poverty. Um, and so that is a concern for, of ours, and we've been talking about it for years. Um, and and what 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 it tells us is that families aren't making enough money um, to meet the basic needs of their kids. And um, so trying to figure out solutions to that is is what we want our decision makers to be doing. We don't want. Um, you know, the children born into poverty, it is of no choice of their own, and it's a condition, it is not a personal, you know, failure. It is um, a lot, a lot of times it's generational, and so trying to find solutions where it's two-generation approach to, you know, providing um, parents who maybe don't have tools to access um, family-supporting wages, jobs with family-supporting wages, giving them the tools um, maybe to finish their GED or get training so that they can um, access, um, can apply to jobs, um, and at the same time making sure that there's child care for their, for their kids when they do go to work, quality child care. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot at play then that comes out of talking about children in poverty. How do you support them and their families without punishing um, or being punitive? Um, because withholding um, supports, um, which we've been doing lately for, with these families and with these children, um, it's not clear to me what um, what is the result of that when we've, you know, taken, we used to have, just a few years ago, we had about 23,000 children receiving um, temporary assistance for needy families, TANF, um, and now it's down to a, a little over 10,000. But our poverty rate during that time didn't change. And so the economic needs are still there for the children. And so what's happening, and um, I'm not, we, you know, we don't have that answer in the data book. It's something I'd like to explore um, to figure out if, if these, you know, stricter sanctions and strict time limits that we've set in place for families in an economy that's not working in all parts of our state, how is that working for kids? Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, Maine Magazine and the Maine Media Collective, we spent a lot of uh, energy, getting behind the efforts of John Woods and Full Plates, Full Potential, and Share Our Strength, and this is an effort to end uh, childhood hunger, specifically in Maine, but also around the country. And when John talks about the 40-plus percent uh, children of school age who are food insecure, meaning they don't even have enough in their bellies to be able to learn properly right. over the course of a school day, I find that shocking. Mm-hmm. And part of the issue that he describes and why he is doing full plates, full potential, is that the money exists. There, There is government funding for providing lunches to children and breakfast to children. But for some reason, there's a disconnection between the money that is out there and the children themselves. Is this, a, this the type of thing that you're talking about, is helping make connections yes, on various yes. levels? Yes, and we actually, um, the Maine Children's Alliance, we've become involved with Full Plates, Full Potential, and, um, and support that work. And we actually gave them um, a giraffe award this year at our Champions for Children Award in October for the work they're doing um, to raise um, awareness uh, and, and raise best practices around um, getting kids um, food and and so I love what he's doing because it's true that money it's federal money the USDA is paying for that and so we ha- you know and the kids are eligible <laughs> and so it is um, in our best interest to um, get every child who uh, to fill out their application as to whether or not they're eligible um, and that's in districts maybe where where the, the poverty rate isn't so high. And then there's other ways you can do community eligibility where based on um, the poverty rate, you know, your, your, the number of kids in your community who are receiving TANF and SNAP, if those reach a certain threshold, um, then you can have what's called community eligibility and then all kids just get lunch. Um, and that it's so simple. <laughs> and that, and then we're drawing down the money. And that, that builds our economy at the same time because we're buying food from, from people, you know, from Cisco, from, you know, folks who provide food um, to our schools. And so it's a win-win. And, and then our children are, are ready to learn because they aren't sitting there hungry, that, which can cause behavior issues, which can cause feelings of sickness, and then they go to the nurse, um, and it creates a disruption in their um, educational day. And so if we can 
do things like, you know, if kids get there late to school, let them grab a breakfast and take it into the classroom while they're, we're, they're working. So it's not, um, so it's easy. We need to make it easier for kids um, who might be struggling with um, living in the condition of poverty or not, if not even poverty, low income. Families making, you know, less than 38,000 approximately, you know, family of three, a parent and two kids, that's low income. And so you're not making enough to, to just get by. And, and so it may not look to the, you know, to the teacher or to someone in the school that the child is living in poverty, but they still might not have what they need in their refrigerator at home. And so we have these programs that, um, that feed kids. And, 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 and I love what Full Plates Full Potential is doing. They're working across sectors with business leaders, politicians, communities, food service directors to make it happen. It's interesting as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about kids in schools and specifically because I have patients who are teachers and are um, educational technicians and people who work in, in, so, in the social work field and they so want to help children and they are uh, absolutely experiencing the stress of not having the tools they need. As, as you have alluded to, like childcare providers saying, we have behavioral issues we're dealing with and we have no, we don't have the background for this. And this is something that um, I worry about burnout. I worry, I worry about provider burnout for these children who really need so much and these families who need so much. And yet even people who are dedicated, have dedicated their lives to taking care of them and helping bring them, um, I guess, in a positive way into the world, they're, they're feeling stressed. Yeah. I, my husband is a principal. Um, in an elementary school that's a Title I elementary school, and I can attest to the stress <laughs> that he carries um, as an educational leader around um, what's going on with kids. And there are kids who are showing up with what I call trauma, <laughs> you know, and, and they are in what might look like behavior issues that might be, you know, uh, that, that could look like ADHD or something else. It's trauma. And so there's some good work going on with the Maine Resilience Building Network, Merbin. Um, they train folks in trauma-informed care, working with providers, working with public health nurses, going into communities to teach people that what trauma looks like, what, um, why kids might be misbehaving, um, because they might be exposed. It's not just poverty, but violence, separation and divorce, death of a parent, incarceration, all kinds of things that are called adverse childhood experiences um, that, that weigh heavily on a child. And if not um, lo you know, looked at and, and dealt with in a, in a way that provides healing, it will carry into their adulthood and, um, and create issues of not just physical health, but you know, emotional health issues as well as possible, you know, workforce issues for them. There's so it's really imperative that we 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 have our providers, our teachers, nurses, doctors, all with a trauma informed lens so that they can um, recognize it in children instead of and so when a child is misbehaving in class understanding what might be going on for them outside of the classroom allows the teacher to not react in a way that might trigger even more for that child. Um, and sometimes school is a safe place for a child to let off the steam that they've been holding in 
um, in a in a home that may not feel safe to them. Um, and so that's sometimes that's at play as well. Um, but I, I agree. I think that we need to do a better job of equipping um, the folks who are on the front lines working with our kids, you know, in, in teacher training and um, early ed programs, making sure that that's a part of the curriculum of folks who are working with, with children. The other group that I deal with also is, is are the children. And so I've, I've had on more than one occasion um, a parent who came in with a child and maybe even a fairly young child who was told, because there was no other good answer, um, you should bring your, your child to the doctor because your child might have ADHD and because of this attention deficit hyperactivity disorder that's presumed, your child may need medication. And as a doctor, I, I struggle with that mm. because I certainly have seen children who need medication and I have seen children for whom medication is the absolute worst thing. But in either case, it's a multivariate approach. It really is. If you need medication, then you need medication. And you also need some help with logistics and how to organize your day if you're a child or a parent. You also need family structure. You also need looking into past um, trauma issues. But the most successful children that I've ever seen are children that require and families that require multiple services. And it and it's and it's it can be very successful if we can look at it that way. Yeah. I yeah, it's a multi, you know, faceted approach. And and I think sometimes there's silos within those systems and so maybe the parent is receiving services over here and the child over here and trying to make you know, and, and every you know, all the folks in the family have case managers but they're not communicating. So it's trying to find ways to um, to break those silos down, um, I, you know, we don't do, we haven't done much around the medication of children yet. But I've, I've read studies. You know, there's over medication of, of children, especially like in foster care. You know, over prescribing, um, and and what that does. You know, it's it's so important to make sure that across, um, that it's monitored well and consistently given, and um, that's not always happening when a child maybe be going between two households and making sure dad, you know, is, is giving the medication at the same time as when mom has the child and is doing it. And those kinds of issues that, um, that, that happen, that then come back and, and play out in the school if the child was with one of the parents over the weekend and the medication didn't get given and then they show up on Monday. You know, there a lot of things to think about um, in all of this. And then also just as children are changing and going through puberty, what does that do? Making sure that you have a good physician who's following up on all of that and making sure that it's the right dosage and um, consistent over time. So lots of things to be concerned about over that. Well, and it really is, it's a team approach. Yes. So it's, uh, I, I, in the patients that I have with ADHD or autism or um, some other diagnosable issue or patients, children with trauma, um, yeah, I I, as a doctor, if I was standing there by myself, I would be absolutely at a loss. Yeah. It's working with 
my nurses and the medical assistant and the people in the front office and all the people that help um, the family and the teachers and the social workers. And so I think it is incumbent upon all of us who want to work with children and families to learn how to be a part of a team. That's right. I, I think of that too, like in terms, I get, keep going back to the schools, but, but like in t- thinking about the outcomes of schools, you know, what, like if we look at their reading scores or we look at graduation rates, thinking of that as a team number. It's not just the school's number. It's not just not a reflection of the high school graduation rate isn't a reflection of what the school has done. It's what the community has provided to the kids to give them the best chance at um, reaching their full potential and success. And so um, it's that it's a team approach as well. So how are the providers working with the schools and, and getting feedback about that so that it informs then your decision as you know, medical provider, um, how's this working for the child in their daily life? And, um, and, and, and so I think, you know, places like IEP meetings where, for kids who are diagnosed with a special ed and receiving special ed services, um, that's a place where that kind of information is shared. And wouldn't it be wonderful if all kids had access to people talking about them in ways that are, you know, collective and, um, and sharing information so that um, everyone's working, you know, parents, providers, teachers, we're all working together um, to, to make sure kids are, are doing their best. I feel like there's uh, so many different directions we could <laughs> go with our uh, conversation. You've been in Maine since 96, and you've been um, the head of the Maine Children's Alliance since 2014. You've worked in um, all different areas of helping people. <laughs> what is it, what is the one thing that you would hope to see in your personal slash professional career in doing the work that you do? What is the one thing you would hope to see changed? Mm. I think I would like for people to, um, I guess I would like to turn some of the conversation around, around poverty and stop I would like for people to stop kind of beating up on people who live with the condition of poverty. And instead of saying that that's the problem, um, I, I think poverty is, the, is a condition that's created by greed. You know, there, there's enough in our world. Um, it's, and so how do, we, how do we talk about that? And how do we then help people um, make headway in our economy and in our workforce so that they so that everyone has um, the right and the potential to earn um, a job that supports their family and without it being about personal failing I guess that's I'd love to see the conversation change and um, I think it is in communities I, I live in Bath and I think um, it's been a wonderful place to raise kids I mean we have uh, a high poverty rate, a high child poverty rate, but I feel like there's been interesting work to um, quiet work to um, to meet the needs of kids and understand that we need to give them what they um, deserve to to meet their best potential. We have an indoor skate park and teen center for kids who, you know, maybe don't fit the mold of, you know what what kids you know sports that are offered through the schools after school and um, a place that's safe um, for and I, I worked there for a while it's it's a neat 
concept and our community you know did that they saw a need they saw an issue of kids skating in downtown bath and um, it was bothering our shoppers and our um, business folks which of course it was and so they found a solution instead of it being like those bad teenagers it became like what can we do to change that and so I'd love to just see more of that and I think there is it's just we don't we end up list, focusing on the bad news so much that we don't think about what communities are doing um, to support kids. And then we need to just share across communities best practices that are working. So I know, like, I think it's in Bodenham, they're trying to build a skate park too. You know, so, and they, they know about ours and there's some feedback and some, um, some want, you know, sharing of best practices. So um, I, I think I'm, I just wish there would be more of that and less um, kind of pointing blame at people for not living up to some standard that we expect them to be at. Claire, how can people find out about the 2015 Maine Kids Count book or the Maine Children's Alliance? Our website is mekids.org and you can find all kinds of um, You'll find the data book online. Um, we're on Facebook. Um, we have a Facebook page, and we also are on Twitter. And I don't know my handle right now. It's like at me children, I think. <laughs> um, so there's lots of ways to engage with us, and um, we love to hear from folks. And we we want to visit different communities in 2016. We want to go on the road and try to visit every county in the state and talk about data and hear what people are doing. Um, you know, there's. There's really great things happening, you know, from Washington County to York County up to Aroostook and Piscataquis. Um, good things are happening. Um, we just need to lift them up and share them and then, um, and then see if we can maybe replicate things in other parts of the state. We've been speaking with Claire Berkowitz, who is the executive director of the Maine Children's Alliance. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And I... Um I hope that our conversation today is going to encourage people to find out more about what's going on with children in our state and the good work that the Maine Children's Alliance is doing. Great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. When I was younger, one of my earliest memories upon coming to Maine was to go buy shoes with my mom at Lamy Wellahan. And so it's very interesting that um, life being what it is, I now have the opportunity to sit in across the microphone from Jim Wellahan, who is the co-owner and CEO of Lamy Wellahan, which is a Maine-based family-owned shoe company. This year, he was a recipient of the Corporate Giraffe Award given by the Maine Children's Alliance for his dedication to family-friendly policies and fair wages for employees. And so thank you so much for coming in, for doing all the work you've done, not only for putting shoes on my feet, but the shoes, the shoes on the feet of many Mainers, but also the work that you're doing for families in Maine. Well, Lisa, it's all been fun. I mean, there are lots of issues. There are many, many social issues, as you know, and we all know, in Maine. And 
You grew up at a time when life was a little bit easier, a little more rosy, and so did I. Uh, when I was a kid, we just come through the recession, the depression, and we had World War II going on. Then I grew up, we had the wonderful days of the Cold War, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, but somehow or other, everyone in town had a job. Families stayed together. There was more co social cohesiveness. There wasn't a big drug problem, and when I was a kid, I will confess to drinking a couple of couple of cans of beer senior year, uh, but, but that was it. And, and now uh, I was at a, uh, a meeting with some school board members just, uh, this was in, in Auburn uh, you know, about two weeks ago, and one of the sad things, they were talking about the heroin epidemic. And we've gone so far, I mean, 20, 25 years ago, kids used to puff on the weed, and it wasn't a good thing, don't misunderstand me. But heroin is just so much more deadly, so much more addictive, so much more destructive of life uh, that uh, we've come a long ways and it hasn't all been good. Some, things, some good things have happened, don't misunderstand me. We, if we stay talking together for a while, we'll think of one or two of them, but lots gone. We, we need, as I came into Portland today, it was kind of sad. I was, uh, when I go into Portland, I see lots of homeless people wherever I go. And that wasn't the case when you were a kid when I was a kid. And I, I think we've got lots of issues and we've got to resolve them. Uh, but you get the answers for those. See what you can do. Oh, well, I don't know if I have the answers. That's why I bring people like you in so that we can have conversations to see see what see what you think. You, you were born in Lewiston in 1938. Right. So that's kind of an interesting and pivotal time in our country. Well, I think there's nothing but pivotal times. Uh, this is an interesting one now. And I, I look at where we're at and it's interesting in many, many areas. We check retail sales, see what's going on in many communities. Retail sales put in a slight downgrade in general merchandise sales for the last five, six, seven years. That's true in Augusta. It's true in Bangor. It's true in Androscoggin County. And you look at that and say, why? And when you get to the income inequality we have, and Maine is not as bad as many states, don't misunderstand me, but when you've got that, there are lots of people who can buy nothing. And it's just an awful way to have it, to have so many people in desperate want and others. Most of us are, are doing all right, don't, don't misunderstand me. And, and there's, Maine is, is, is fortunate, there aren't many people who just, you know, want to spend and spend and live with these extravagant lives. There are a few, but not too many. Uh, but it's an issue we've got as a society. The major top to, the top to bottom pay ratio uh, for the top CEOs in this country compared to the base worker is 347 to 1. And, you know, you're smart, you work hard, but you aren't 347 times smarter than the other people you see. And you don't work 347 times as long or as efficiently or anything, nor do I. So I, I think we've got to look at these things and say, how do we make it a fair society where we can educate all of our children we can bring up all of our children. We can, we can enjoy each other as people. We can be one society, and, and that's that's our challenge. So, so tell me about these family-friendly policies that you've taken um, taken to heart within your company. Well, you know, first you're, you're very kind to ask about that. But if you pay people seven fifty an hour, they can't live very well. So we've tried to put incentives in our in our pay structure, and the average pay for all of, all of our non-managerial people is $15 an hour. And 
that works. Now, we need to have it in such a way that we have high expectancies of our people, and we want high rewards, we want them to do well, and they take pride in their work. They stay a long time and they enjoy it, and uh, their children are, doesn't happen very often, but there's a first situation where it comes up, they're welcome to be at, the, be at the office for a bit and do what they need to do and so forth and draw some pictures, and the, the couple we've had in have always been well-behaved, much better than I would have been. <laughs> So those are some of the things that we do. We, I mean, and and we have a low top to bottom pay ratio. Uh, it's three and a half to one top to bottom, and, and that's enough. Uh, and Kath and I live well. We've got a uh, nice kids and good grandchildren. And you need enough. You don't need too much. So you came into the family business after having done other things. Well, everyone does other things. I. I, I uh, I enjoyed my grammar school at St. Pat's and St. Tom's High School and went off to college at, at Holy Cross. But um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I began working in the stockroom. And when I was in college, I, I uh, sold shoes. And we used to, I worked in the downtown Portland store, too. And we had some very cute girls come in from Montreal. So I decided I was going to learn how to speak French better. And having lived grown up in Lewiston, where it's a very Franco-American community, I was fortunate so many of my friends were from French families in St. Tom's, so I, I, I learned French. But I, after I met these Montreal girls, I said, I'm going to perfect this thing. So I, I worked at it, and I, I enjoy the language, I enjoy the culture, and was still very active in the, at the Franco-American Center and things like that. But uh, we just want our people to have enough. We want to be, if, if there's... If somebody has an illness, if somebody has some time they need to be off, something going on, we try and find ways to make that happen. It's what you have to do. And that's why we have people, we have Nancy Fournier's been with us 38 years, we've got a lot of people with us in the 30 years, great many have been with us 20 years, and you know, if they don't like it, they go someplace else. Uh, but most people really enjoy it, and they stay with us. We have a very low turnover for a retail operation, and if you have a low turnover, you can work with your people. They can be better at their jobs. They can learn more. Uh, we make sure all of our people have Vedothic training, so they, they're very good at, at foot deformities, foot issues, and so forth. They can, can work with people to to help make them more comfortable. When some, and you know the funny thing is when people walk out of the door and says, boy, this is great. My feet haven't felt this good in years. When somebody says that to you, you feel good. And so that's one more reason to stay. So why did your family choose to, sh to focus on shoes? Well, Dad uh, was born, my dad was born in 1888, which is a few years ago. And uh, he went to where he had to leave high school in, in ninth grade, because there was no money in the family. His, his dad had come up when the railroad was being built. and. Uh, so Dad got a job with with Race Foss at Dingley Foss. And he, there was a shoe factory in Lewiston. And he worked in shoe factory to get a few other jobs. Then he went to work for Peck's Department Store, and they were a wonderful operation to work for. And in fact, Harding uh, uh, Peck wrote a book, uh, "The World of Department Store," about his things, about his operation. He was very socially concerned about people at the time as well. And Dad was the sign painter and window trimmer, and he would start trimming the windows. And, on Saturday night when the store closed at 10, trimmed them all Sunday, 
go up to church at St. Joe's, and then keep on trimming, go up to the furniture department, and crawl into bed and sleep for five, six hours, seven hours, eight hours, and he'd, when he got up in the morning, he'd have a new collar to button onto his shirt, and new cuffs to button onto his shirt, and he went to work. I don't think he took a full shower, so it was a different world then. Life keeps on changing. Uh, but uh, uh, he, he and Charlie Lamy got to be friends. They went in the shoe business, and they did well. They opened in St. Patrick's Day, because, you know, we are a, a good Irish operation. So it was the sort of thing that Dad loved it. It was a wonderful thing, and he wound up marrying my, he met my mom down in Old Orchard back uh, when he was uh, 40 or so, and they had my brother, and then they had me. And uh, so I, it was just always what, what Willie Hens did. So I went off, and I, after I taught overseas for a year in Lesotho, and I came back, and I, I said, what's next? I worked in the shoe store for six months, went in the active reserve for six months active duty at Fort Dix, uh, and you can call me Sarge, by the way. Uh, and uh, then uh, I said, if I'm going to do this, I better learn something. So I went to Wharton and got a master's degree in business, uh, in marketing. And that was in the, the good old days before they had the wonderful courses in lying and cheating and stealing. It was part of the, all the master's programs in business. But uh, uh, they, uh, no, they, they don't really have that. I'm kidding you, Lisa, as you Well, I, I was going to say, my brother is actually at Wharton right now. I'll is have to he ask really? him about that coursework. Oh, what's he doing at Wharton? Oh, he's getting his MBA. Oh, is he? Oh, that's, that's interesting. It was a great place for me. And uh, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Uh, but uh, it was a good experience. And I came back and, and went to work. And uh, uh, I, I guess I liked it uh, over time. And uh, it was a very welcoming community to be back in Lewiston. And it was fun to be with everybody and all that stuff, the old, all the old friends. Old friends are good friends. And uh, so... Uh, Things kept on rolling along, and I, when Dad passed on in 76, uh, I was the guy who said, okay, Jim, you're in charge. And I'd kind of been increasingly making decisions for a while, and it was it was a good way to grow into it. Dad had two people who worked with him who were very capable and very long. He had a lot of long-serving people as well, the same sort of thing. I mean, he took good care of his people. It was an example that he set, and I knew that was what you're supposed to do. So I did. What was it like being Irish in Lewiston? It was great. You know, I'll tell you a story, Lisa. When uh, uh, when my dad was a kid, the French Canadians were just coming in because the Western wheat had failed up in up in uh, Quebec, and they had to go to something else. And all these, you know, it may surprise you, but the French Canadians had very large families—10, 12, 13, 14. I had one friend who had 17 brothers and sisters, and uh, so they came in, came down, and they looked for work in the mills and came to Lewiston and Waterville and, and Westbrook and Biddeford and Lawrence, Mass, and Lowell, Mass, and Manchester, New Hampshire, and good people. And it was they, they, as they went to work in the mills, they took their areas, and that became their territory. The Irish had their territory, Clonbeef Hill or uh, the Gas Patch or all these places. And uh, so an Irish kid didn't walk through a French neighborhood without another 20 Irish kids with him. And a French kid didn't walk through an, uh, uh, an Irish neighborhood with another 20 kids with him. And then all of a sudden, uh, Sean noticed that Monique was pretty cute. 
So something started to happen there, and, and, and then Jean-Pierre was looking at Patricia and Sheila. Boy, they, they were, it was great. So pretty soon we got to be an intermixed group, and they used to be in the French-Irish baseball games. Uh, and at the uh, as the thing wore down to the end, an old friend of mine, uh, a former coach, Harry Lazat, used to play for the Irish team, despite having a good French name. So it was... Uh, the, it was an interesting thing. The Irish, despite their ability to, to breed quickly in many areas, in Lewiston they stayed home and, and took care of the folks. And if you go up to Mount Hope, you'll see a lot of Irish names, and that's just the way it was. And uh, so the French took over, and they were good people. I really came to like French values very much, and I, I, I'm emotionally and spiritually at least half French uh, as, as well as Irish. Uh, and uh, but, uh, and we brought up our kids to speak French, too. Now, all my friends uh, didn't uh, bring up their kids to speak French because they had been mocked and kidded when they were young, and you get this accent, and uh, when they went off to college or when they went off to, into the service, they were kidded. So they named all their kids Patrick uh, or, whatever, you know, Michael, whatever. It's a good Irish name because if you went French, well, I guess Irish will do, you know, one of those. We'd gotten to be friends over time. And uh, now it's funny to watch the, uh, the way communities change, the smiles have come in over the last uh, 10, 12, 15 years, and they honestly have done a wonderful job in the community. We, I don't know if you're aware, but Lewiston won the, soccer, the state soccer championship this past uh, weekend, and it was all, there were 10 Somali kids and a, and a white goalie, and they were a great team, and it was wonderful to see everyone cheering the team on as they, uh, you know, all, all calling out the, the the, the names and so forth, just as easy as if they were French or if they were Irish or if they were Somalis, and, and they are a wonderful asset to our community. We've been very blessed to have them. And uh, Mayor Gilbert did a, did a great job with them. Uh, you know, his daughter Karen works with you here, who's an old friend. She used to work in our store. Uh, and uh, so he made sure they had a good place to be, and there's election coming up, and I, I hope if Mayor McDonald wins, he goes through some some rethinking, because these are good people that come in, they've no nothing to, to live on and had hard times, and they need to have help just the way the Irish did. I mean, years ago, I, when, I, when I was first married, so we're looking maybe at 100 and almost 150 years ago. There was a 100-year-ago column, there was 100, no, 100, almost 50 years ago when I was first married, but there was a 100-year-ago column in the Sun Journal. It talked about a cave-in in the street and said, no one was injured. Two or three Irishmen were buried. And the first Irish church in Lewiston was burned to the ground. A and we all are very slow to accept new people. And we're very defensive. And as, But as I see the world changing, and I see more different races coming in, and us becoming more intermingled, I think it's one of the greatest things that can happen to learn from each other, develop from, from each other. And also, if you look at world peace, it's a wonderful thing. I really don't want to go with, to war with Ireland. And if we've got some Somalis who don't want to go to work war with Somalia, and some people from Congo or, or, or wherever, uh, and when the Syrians come in, we start to think we're all one race. I mean, we're, we're a little bit different. I mean, you're, you're blonde, and I, I was, I was dark-haired, and so forth. and. But we are all really one people, and we need to work together, we need to help each other, whether we're selling shoes or building a better world. And that's what we need to do. 
You know, I'll tell you a story, Lisa, as long as you, I see you nodding there. You want another story. You know I was so chatty, did you? I'm happy to hear your stories. Yes, uh, please but, give but me one. When I taught in Lesotho, it was a very interesting year. And Lesotho was a small was a British protectorate surrounded by the Republic of South Africa. And apartheid was in, in style. Then Henrik Verwood ran the country. And it was it was very harsh. And, and they believed in predestination. If you were white, you were going to be saved, and if you were not white, looks tough. So that's the way the world was, and the, the African people, the, the Basuto in, in, the, uh, in the country would go to work in the, in the mines for a nine-month or six-month period, and they'd have to leave the families, and, and so the wives would do the, the planting and so forth, and the harvesting of the, of the food. It's a very tough world. And I was walking down the street one day, and uh, a fellow belonging to the African National Congress looked at me, raised his thumb, and said, Hi, boya. And that means white man get out. So I said, Hi, Kona. And that means that's a crock of bull. Uh, so he said, Hey, lies, you're white, you must get out. I said, No, it's not true. I said, Give me your arm. I, so I took his arm and I put it next to mine. I've been out building buildings and after school and doing things that need to get done. And he was a very light Masudo. And I, I was surprised how, how little difference there was. But I said, I asked him, is there much difference between these two arms? He didn't look down. He kept looking in the eyes. Yes, you're white. I am black. I said, take, a, take another look. Look at these two arms. He looked down. I said, is there much difference? He said, no, there's not much difference. I said, is there any reason these two arms can't work together to build a better country? And he said, we can do that. In that short bit, we had become friends, establish relationship, common goals. We can do that. We can work as, as humanity towards peace, towards kindness, towards love, towards sharing, and that's what we need to do. Well, I agree. I think that that's a, that's a very interesting, it's interesting you had that experience and now are living in Lewiston where I'm guessing that probably 50 years ago, you wouldn't have thought you would be seeing Somalians. No, n not at all. It was funny. It was a very white community, and I went to Holy Cross, and when I was at Holy Cross, there did happen to be three African-Americans there, but they were in different different, gray, different years, so I never get to know any of them. And I remember reading a book, and, you know, you look at times do change, as you probably have noticed. But I remember reading a book, and one of the questions was, uh, talking about African-Americans and so forth, they said, would you want your sister to marry one of them? Well, I didn't have any sisters, but I still didn't know the answer. But when I got over to Lesotho and get to know the people a little bit, I knew the answer. Which one? Same as a white guy. It makes no difference, you know. It's just a, a good, pe want good people for your sister, and they come in all stripes and colors, and so let's work to be one. It seems like it would be helpful for us sometimes to think about where we've actually where we've actually been, where we've come um, from the time of, say, the civil rights movement, or um, how about slavery? Or slavery? That's not that long ago either. No. But really, any of these major social causes, I and mean, they weren't that long ago. No, we've made great progress, and, and and it's good to see. Although, as you see the cartoons that are in the newspaper with uh, President Obama. The big ears, the thick lips, but much different from his real lips. It's just so wrong, so gross to 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 push this sort of belief. Uh, you know, we're got to be in it together. I'm I have many many faults, 
one of which is I'm a left-wing socialistic environmental extremist peacenik radical. But uh, as I look at Ben Carson running, I, I think it's wonderful to see another bl a black candidate. He doesn't have to be my candidate, as you might expect, but but it's good to see that he feels free to run. And uh, this ability to be who you are and what you are is critical for all of us. So this, I, this idea that you have strong environmental interests, from what I understand, you've translated that into some of the, the business precepts within Lamy Wallahan. We've been very lucky. We've had all the people be very involved in it. and. I've always been, and my wife has been, my wife is Kathy, and she's been very concerned about the same sorts of things, but as you see the world, um, it's gotten a little more messed up since, since I was a kid, and we decided we needed to recycle things, so uh, we started recycling and, and worked to recycle 95% of the solid waste that comes into our store. Went up to 96, but Kath got it started back in 94, and we were awarded the Governor's Waste Management for recycling. And it is the sort of thing as I, I went for a run this morning around the neighborhood and there were lots of, uh, most people were doing a wonderful job putting out two, three bins of, of recycling and a few people just putting it all in the wastebasket and it, it trash can. It's, it's just not the way it should be because, you know, if stuff, if you've got stuff, do you want to throw it away and, and cut down some more trees or dig out some more minerals or do you want to use the stuff? And if you've got it, why not use it? There was a wonderful ad, and I was watching Bloomberg this morning after I came back, and there was a wonderful ad on it from Timberland. And they're talking about making tires now. And these tires, uh, once they're finished, they'll all be recycled and turned into soles for Timberland boots. And it's the way things should be. Uh, we need to... Uh, we save everything we possibly can. I mean, and we're very concerned about uh, about many things. One of the things we've been concerned about is global warming. And in 2003, we began to work to cut our energy cost. And we've taken them down 40% since then. We've changed fuels. We've changed, changed temperature settings. Uh, we've increased our insulation. We've put it, as we built new buildings, uh, the new Topsom store, for example, is a great store for us. And the ceiling is R50 and the walls are R30, they're low E windows, all the lighting is, uh, is low E window, is uh, low E window, oh, the lighting, sorry, is, uh, is LED lights, and we have an internal uh, uh, vestibule entrance. So it really keeps it nice and not much change in temperature, and we keep our settings for temperature. In the wintertime you come in, if it's 68 degrees, you're pretty happy to be inside. So we don't have to be 72, we don't have to be 75. In the summertime, we keep it at 75. If you come in from the heat, 75 is comfortable. So you just got to, we've got to adjust all the time and always look at things. So we're happy to have cut our carbon emissions. And we, over the last couple of years ago, we took on a new initiative. And that's to uh, look at plastic in the ocean, which is an awful thing. And there are these huge gyres in every ocean. Uh, well, we're, we're quite in every ocean. They've just started to show up in the Arctic Ocean. And so there are these gyres, uh, uh, the Pacific gyre is, it, they all vary in size, they spread out and contract a little bit, but as large as it's half the size of the United States. And nothing lives in these gyres in general. And, uh, so, and if sea turtles eat a plastic, they're all filled with plastic. If sea turtles eat a plastic bag, they can no longer ingest food, they starve to death. They just found two whales with the same thing that happened in the Arctic Ocean. 
where they've just had to gather plastic there. So it's because it, it all wheels around and goes here and there in the next place. So it is, it's a tough, tough deal. Um, so we stopped using uh, plastic bags uh, and we said, shall we use paper bags? Well, if you look at paper bags, between cutting of the trees, transporting of the wood, producing of, of, the, of the paper, uh, transporting them again to where their destination is, they give off at least five times as much carbon emissions as creating a, a plastic bag. And if you look at our oceans, acidification is a major issue. The oceans are getting warmer. You probably heard in the news this morning about the uh, lobsters moving north, no lobsters in southern New England. And uh, the uh, professor, I believe, believe his name is Mark Green, at St. Joseph's was saying, look, we are not going to be able to have clams because they're not going to be able to grow their shelves. Uh, shells, and we aren't going to have mussels because they're not going to be able to grow their shells because the ocean is, has too much acid in it. And this is because it's getting warmer and warmer. It's got to uh, take all the carbon and all these things and put it into put into its new being. And it, we're just doing awful things to the planet we live on. And I've got three kids, all good kids, all doing their own thing, nice daughters-in-law, and seven grandchildren. And I really don't want to see the world destroyed for them. Uh, and we're capable of doing that. And, and this year, the, this is the first year that carbon emissions have been, have been over 400 milligrams per, uh, per whatever it may be. We're, uh, we cro crossed a threshold. And so we've got to start changing everything we do. Uh, are the cars our people drive? We have some company cars. They're all Priuses, and it's what we've got to do. There are no options on it. Well, I really appreciated the conversation that we've had about the work that you're doing. I can certainly understand why the Children's Alliance has given you its Corporate Giraffe Award. Um, how can people find out about Lamy Wellhand? Do you have a website? We do. It's lwshoes.com. Doesn't everyone have a website? I'm assuming everybody does have a website, yes. So go to the website, people who are listening, or go to a Lamy Wellahan shoe store and see what's going on there for yourself. They're you, nice people, and you'd like them, and they'd like you. Well, I've been there, and I do like them. So I'll, I'll go back again, and I will be reminded. And the people who are listening now, they can, they can do the same thing. So we've been speaking with Jim Wellahan, who is the co-owner and CEO of Lamy Wellahan, a Maine-based, family-owned shoe company. This year, he was the recipient of the Corporate Giraffe Award given by the Maine Children's Alliance for his dedication to family-friendly policies and fair wages for employees. Thank you so much for all the good that you're bringing to the state of Maine. Well, Lisa, you must be bringing some yourself. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by MacPage, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage. Accessible approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 225, Kids Count. Our guests have included Claire Berkowitz and Jim Wellahan. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. 
Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Kids Count show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Mac Page, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bellisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com.